Yeah, I would see AI as a cultural right, because there are many moral and cultural issues intertwined there. We see it in recruitment and we see it in, in health. We see it in the justice system as well. There are distinct risks there. When it comes to a disruptive technology like AI, it's moving really, really fast. So being able to create the, the regulation that's needed is, is actually really, really difficult. When we think of artificial intelligence, the first thing that springs to mind for many of us is a futuristic vision full of robots and potentially humans in peril. But we are already living in a world that's pretty full of AI. It's all around us. It's in our smartphones, our cars, TVs, watches, computers, social media apps. And in some ways, it's making our lives easier and better. But are there hidden perils? Its use is progressing rapidly with governments, police departments, health services, all adopting it as well as the private sector. But the big question for AI now is how do we maximise its benefits while at the same time avoiding the risks? Today we'll be finding out how AI can make the world a safer place and also maybe make the world safe from AI. Welcome to the Global Safety Podcast with Lloyd's Register Foundation. And to help me figure all this out today, I have a brilliant panel of guests joining me via Zoom. Jan Pushtadek, Director of Technologies at Lloyd's Register Foundation. Kiati Sundaram, CEO of Applied, a recruitment platform using AI to build predictive and non-biased hiring. And Alistair Dennison, Director of Insight, the health data research hub for iHealth, consultant ophthalmologist at the University Hospitals Birmingham and honorary professor at the University of Birmingham. Also later on, we'll be hearing from Adriana Bora, AI policy researcher at the Future Society, who will tell us how AI is helping combat modern slavery. And Anna McIntosh and John McDermott from the University of York talking about how they're working to make self-driving cars safe. Well, I suppose the first question that we need to just get out there and have some definition on is what is AI? Um, Jan, let's start with you and feel free to use some uh, examples because it might help us all. What is AI? It's effectively hardware and software working together in order to make sense of information. And once they make sense of that information, they can do things that can achieve the objectives that it's been set so what we're really saying is it's about pattern recognition, it's about gaining insight from data, and increasingly it's about taking that insight and leading to decisions that have an impact in the real world. And what would be your clearest example that, that kind of spells out what it is and couldn't happen without artificial intelligence? Well, if you think of something like uh, doing a, work, a search on the internet... Uh, the internet is using lots of AI in order to understand what your question is and to find that uh, information out there on the big world wide web. And if it wasn't for AI looking for this information and the patterns, it just wouldn't be able to happen. Kiati Sundaram, same question to you, really. Uh, what is AI? And give me a cracking example of it. Well, it is a broad collection of algorithms. And when we say AI, I instantly think of being very pedantic and thinking of machine learning. 
So any algorithm, any software that is written that learns on its own, hence the word machine learning, can classify as AI. The problem today is many algorithms, which is a simple rule that can be written or coded in software, is baptized as AI. So basic rule-based automation that does not improve over time, that does not learn over time on its own, and is human dictated, should not classify as AI. And that's the distinction. A very clear example would be self-driving cars, where there is automation, but they're also learning and adapting to the routes you would take as a human, and they would direct you over time. So that would be AI because they would be using machine learning. But a chatbot that sits on a website that probably has some rule-based conversations and relates to keywords that respond to your questions might not be full AI. Yeah, it's a useful distinction, isn't it, Alistair? Because I often think AI is kind of bolted on to fairly conventional technology in order to make it sound a bit more modern and sexy. Yeah, I know. It's, it, it's a great point. But I think the reason why there's been so much excitement about artificial intelligence recently is exactly what... Uh, Kiati and Kian were, were touching on earlier is the ability not just to follow rules that are set by humans but effectively for the algorithms to learn their own rules and make their own rules from the data that's coming into them. So the beautiful example Kiati used was was the uh, driverless or self-driving cars that effectively they're learning from the data that comes in to build that their own rules by which they would then adapt uh, to operate in a new unseen situation. And in my field of medicine, that that's something we're really excited about because there are there are high volume repetitive tasks which we don't have enough doctors and health professionals to deliver efficiently and at scale. And the the the, the holy grail is to have artificial intelligence start to automate those processes so that we can identify and diagnose um, at scale and faster, you know, that we can have expert level care in, you know, in the back of beyonds because we're not limited to a finite number of, of humans with that particular expertise um, that you can have 24-7 uh, diagnostic availability at the same standard as, um, as you might get in an expert centre. So we're really excited. Mm. Jan, how different is the reality of AI to the public's perception of it? Well, it's an interesting question that Lloyd Register Foundation, we have something called the World Risk Poll that's been featured in these podcasts before, where we've gone out to 150,000 people across 142 countries to understand how they perceive risk. And in the 2019 poll, we asked a, a fairly simple question which was if people believed that AI over the next 20 years would be mostly uh, helpful or mostly harmful in their country. And, and the results of that were quite interesting. So if we look at a global picture, we were finding that 41% of, of people that were involved said it would be positive for their country. And we had 30% of people who thought it would be negative and 29% of people who, who didn't give an answer. And we were finding that people in Southern Europe were amongst the most likely to say that AI technology would, would harm people in their country over the next 20 years. Uh, and that was at 51% that said it would be harmful. And then you had a similar number of people saying it would be harmful in South America, Latin America and the Caribbean. 
Do you think that's based on their experience of AI, or do you think it's a slightly wider suspicion of, of technology or science or advancement in some way? Is it really based on a knowledge of what AI is? I, I, I actually doubt that most people really understand what AI is. There appears to be a correlation between countries that think AI will do the greatest good having the greatest trust in scientists and for countries that have the lowest trust in scientists thinking that AI will create the greatest harm. But on, on top of that, people in the age groups from 15 to 29 were far more likely to think that AI would be a force for good uh, and suspect that maybe because they've grown up with technology and they understand what it is. And, and the final insight was that women uh, were more likely to find AI harmful than men. Uh, would uh, Alistair or Chiati, would you want to come in on this? Well, it is a very nuanced issue, isn't it? Tom, um, algorithms and artificial intelligence are not foolproof. We know that, but neither are humans, with all of the evidence showing that if humans are left to taking people decisions, which is especially relevant in the field that I work in, we are going to take decisions that are adversely impacting a lot of the population. And that ties into Jan's comment about why women feel that AI would probably create negative outcomes for them. And this is not just women, this is a lot of underrepresented populations of society. And that brings in a challenge of how we address that. You mean they might feel that because it, it has been bad? It has been. They might, they might be based on experience, is what you're saying. Definitely. Well, we're going to come on to, to how this works and how AI reinforces past prejudice, in effect. Uh, we're going to come on to that in, in, in a minute. Uh, Alistair, did you just want to come in on that, that perception of AI question? Yeah, I think... Um one of the funny things about AI is it's one of those nebulous terms that people turn it into what they want it to be or what they fear it to be. So I think it's very good that you actually challenged us to come up with a definition at the beginning, because my observation is that um, you need to refine what you're talking about before you before you explore the attitudes, because because otherwise people will be talking about very different different things. So I think there is a real perception problem and there's a trust problem and they're connected. And I think that's partly because, you know, people will distrust the bits of AI that they, they fear and trust the bits that they would like to have, but nobody's quite sure what the reality is. In, in, you know, and so if start with the definition and then take it from there. One of the things that springs to my mind when I think about AI is self-driving or autonomous vehicles that we heard about a moment ago. And although we're some way there with things like automatic cruise control and computer vision, fully autonomous cars are still, it would seem, years, maybe decades away. And that's according to Anna McIntosh and John McDermott from the Assuring Autonomy International Programme, a project led by the University of York and funded by Lloyd's Register Foundation. Anna and John recorded this interview for us earlier in the year. The Assuring Autonomy International Programme uh, is a six-year programme that's looking at gaining more understanding about the safety uh, of robotics and autonomous systems. Driverless cars are a really good example of autonomous systems. Those systems need to be able to make decisions based on their environment. They have to respond to what's happening outside them on the roads, but also respond to the driver or the passenger inside the car. Actually, human beings build up an understanding of the world over 
um, many, many years before they learn to drive cars. You know, they know what children and bicycles are. They know what scooters are. Um, they uh, understand how people b- behave. The cars don't. Um, all they do is have massive amounts of training data from which they draw um, inferences. And, you know, they would need to see an astonishing um, amount of data to do with all the circumstances that exist. And, oh, and then, oh, by the way, the world changes. We introduce new types of cars or new road layouts or, or, or whatever. So having things that have learnt enough to replace that sort of human intellectual capability um, you know, is, is a huge, huge problem. In deploying uh, robotics and autonomous systems, I think it's really important to consider safety really early. Now, you can't be thinking about it uh, at a late stage when the technology is already developed. You need to think about safety right at the beginning of the design process uh, and design systems to be safe, not just have safety as an afterthought. You know, sometimes people say, well, actually, you're stopping this stuff being deployed. But actually, I think what we're enabling deployment, if they're not safe, they're not going to be accepted, they're not going to be used. The work that we do in safety is completely critical to the deployment of these devices. And with the help of the Lloyds Register Foundation in, in setting up the Assuring Autonomy International Programme, that's going to make a huge difference to advancing all of these technologies to the point where we can really have them on the roads or in factories or in people's homes. Um, and that's the future. Thanks to Anna and John at the University of York for that. Uh, Jan, I've always been a little bit sceptical about self-driving cars because it, it seemed to me that the simple wealth of information we bring to driving, which is a mixture of a mental and a physical and emotional task, is far more than just obeying the rules of the road. And it also strikes me that artificial intelligence, and if you like robotics, has actually proved itself to be rather poor in the kind of mental-physical interface, where it requires a, a, a physical act as well as a uh, a, a processing act. I was looking at something the other day in farming, and yeah, AI and computers are brilliant at spotting whether of, whether fruits are ripe, and they can do it incredibly pick, quickly. But when you combine that with a picking task, it was absolutely hopeless. That's right. I mean, we're talking about AI having lots of inputs that it, it needs to control and lots of outputs that it's trying to also control. So if you're looking at fruit picking, you have the challenge of identifying the fruits, uh, is that fruit ripe even? And then you'll have some sort of a, 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 a system to try and pick that fruit. And it needs to understand, does it pick it with a certain amount of pressure or does it squeeze it and press it? Or is there enough of a grip to be able to grab it? Um, you know, for us, even for a small child, it's pretty easy to be able to find some piece of fruit on the tree and, and drag it off. But for AI, it's not a natural thing. It has to learn all these things and have systems in place to to understand the environment in which it's trying to work. Now we're going to hear from Adriana Bora, AI policy researcher at the Future Society and member of Code 8.7, a collaboration of people and organisations using AI to eradicate forced labour, modern slavery, human trafficking and child labour in all its forms. She's in Australia, so we decided to record this interview with her at a slightly more sociable hour.
Modern slavery is truly a global crime, and based on our latest estimates we came, which came out in 2018, we know that around 40.3 million people are in modern slavery across the globe. When we look deeper into these statistics, we also realize that one in four victims of modern slavery is a child, and more than 50% of the victims are women and girls. With Project AIMS, which stands for AI Against Modern Slavery, we are trying to use uh, this technology to help us accelerate the work that we're doing in trying to understand what businesses are doing to tackle slavery in their supply chain. So from the shocking statistics of 40.3 million uh, of people that uh, we had estimated to be in modern slavery, 16 million of those are estimated to feed directly into the global supply chain of big corporations and therefore to end up in the products and the services that we are consuming every day. The UK government in 2015 passed a legislation called the Modern Slavery Act. And in this legislation, corporations that have a turnover of over 36 million pounds are obliged to publish per year one statement to declare how they're ensuring that their supply chain is free of slavery. And now Australia passed a similar legislation and we see governments such as New Zealand and Canada and many across the globe looking at passing modern slavery legislation. So what this leaves us with uh, is with thousands of statements that generally the research community and the civic society community doesn't have time to, to read and to benchmark. And therefore, we don't have a clear understanding of what companies are doing and what companies can do more to tackle this horrible crime in their supply chain. And this is where AI comes into place. We use AI to put together all these statements and to uh, summarize this information, to benchmark those statements against a set of score metrics, and to really be able to say, yes, this year this company has talked about their training again, uh, for their employees, they have a whistleblowing policy in place or a modern slavery policy, um, uh, a risk identification, incident identification policy, um, and make this uh, information available in a structured form for the community to use further in their research and in their intervention. Slavery, it is a, um, a physical act and it leaves traces. And therefore, whenever there are traces, there are opportunities to use data to map it back. So the University of Nottingham uh, have been doing uh, incredible work here mapping illegal fishing um, by uh, looking for the, the drying racks of the fish, but also to map even cases of um, slavery that are happening in more developed countries such as uh, the informal agriculture and strawberry picking fields and camps in Greece. There are opportunities to use um, data, for instance, on the social media platforms where a lot of the uh, grooming uh, and the, uh, the recruitment of people into slavery is 
taking place. So we can we can use textual data such in project aims. We can use images um, from satellite or images collected by uh, people with their cameras. Uh, use social media data in identifying people at risk to be recruited or recruitment networks, um, and uh, follow the money, which is always a really great uh, opportunity to investigate behavior. So we have a lot of data, uh, a lot of traces that slavery is living um, across the globe. Uh, and now with AI, we have an opportunity to make sense of this really in, uh, incredible amount of unstructured data and structure it and make it uh, available to community to link the, the pieces and put the puzzle together and create the evidence we need to eradicate this crime. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much to Adriana Bora for that insight. But I want to hear from the panel now about what other safety applications are there for AI. Yes, Jan. So when it comes to making things safer, uh, there are certain routes to do that. And there, I'll just name three of them. One is about taking a person out of a place of harm to stop them going into a place that is dangerous to them. Another way is to be able to monitor what's happening, how things are developing with, with real-time data that you can be collecting. And the final thing is it's about being able to understand what is happening so you can predict uh, a future situation and take steps to avoid an accident before it happens. And AI has a really important role that it's already started to do in, in these types of areas. So you could think of something like a confined space. So people go and work in confined spaces for various reasons to inspect, to, to repair. Uh, and these are spaces that have hazards in them. Uh, as you know, Tom, confined spaces are very areas where you may not have breathable air or breathable air may disappear in time. These can be very uh, radioactive places if you're in a nuclear power station. They can be very hot if you're in a hot environment. So putting people's lives at risk in these locations is, is, is something that we tend to do today when we have to. But if you're using technology with sensors and AI, it's able to monitor those locations, either by something that's fixed in that location, or alternatively on some sort of a, a robot or a, a drone that can go into those spaces to collect the information that people can then use to understand and interpret. Another example is, is, is the ability to install sensors into things like bridges. And we have a recent example in Amsterdam where the world's first 3D printed stainless steel bridge has been built and installed for the public in Amsterdam. And this is a, a technology which is new and there are certain uncertainties in there. But what we've done through the project there is we've made it into a smart bridge with sensors, with a digital twin, and we've got AI technology that's constantly monitoring the data that's streaming from that bridge in order to give us confidence in its condition to keep being safe for members of the public and also to tell us when it might need someone to go and have a look. And that's more than just constant monitoring, is it? It is somehow learning about the way the bridge is used? It is. It's, it's, it's basically picking up patterns of what normal looks like so that when something different happens and it can, it can identify the change in patterns, uh, 
which is something that's really powerful and, and it's going to be a game changer into the future. Alistair, you mentioned earlier on some of the stuff to do with healthcare, and obviously you're involved particularly in ophthalmology, eye care. But perhaps you could give us a, a bit more of a flavour about how important it is and will be in health. So I, I definitely think this is part of the future. I don't think it's the whole future for health. I think um, the the sort of headlines about replacing doctors or replacing wider health professionals are misplaced. But I think it's about finding what are the real strengths of AI. And I come back to this automation of high volume routine tasks. One one application is for them to to highlight areas that might be easily missed by humans. So you can have a human in the loop who's checking, but the AI draws attention to areas that might be missed. You could have AI systems that do routine checking in the background. So of, for example, radiology scans, etc., where you still have a human reporting, but um, they're also second read uh, by, a, by a computer and so on. And I think that that in a sense may be the first application of some of these systems this is the kind of safety safety level most ai diagnostic and screening tasks though have been designed to to potentially also be used in as as replacing a human in the sort of diagnostic or screening process um, but even though the technical capability is there there's still that sense of well, we need to know, can we actually trust this on these really critical decisions? So I was going to word, raise the T yeah. word, trust, you know, whether patients are more likely to forgive in a funny way a, a human, again, it's wrong, than, than, a, than a, what it considers a machine also, especially if it's made that mistake thousands of times. Well, it, it's funny that, that certainly when the, the data I've seen on, on trust in this area is that uh, humans are far, for, far more forgiving of poor performance from other humans than they are from a machine. There's a, there's a powerlessness in terms of handing your care over to a machine that, that people find very unsettling, which is another reason why I think having humans and machines, AI working together is, is probably the, the most powerful and effective way going forward. One of the risks we mentioned earlier about AI is what's called algorithmic bias, which I think basically means that it reinforces prejudices and biases that we've maybe had and built up through our human society over the years that can then be reinforced by a system. But Kiati, tell me why, what this is and why it's such a problem, particularly in your field of recruitment. Yeah, so I'm coming at it from the angle of hiring and recruitment where a lot of people's decisions are rife with bias. But if you speak specifically about algorithms or AI which are in widespread use, by the way, although quite controversial in the impact they're having in this particular field, there are three areas how you could have algorithmic bias. So one, very simply, you could say uh, an algorithm is trained on past decisions and the recruiters in the past were biased and therefore the algorithm will replace um, but replicate what the recruiters have done in the past. Are we talking that if, if people have had you know, gender bias in their recruiting or racial bias in their recruiting in the past, or maybe age bias in their recruiting, that, that these things are likely to be reinforced by an algorithm? Is that the point? Yes, any kind of bias. So this is non-specific, but it could be gender, age, ethnicity, any kinds of biases that play in a decision when you're making a hire. And all of this, if they were 
reflected in the data made on the decisions that the recruiters were doing in the past, this would be reinforced in any algorithm that is trained on that data. And we've seen examples of that, have we? We have definitely seen examples of that. We have a very famous example from Amazon where they had a black box AI that only ended up hiring or offering jobs to men because the entire training data set was made on what good looks like and that looked like white men in the company. The second way this can come in is, and this is happening a lot right now, is if the data is trained on the behaviours of a majority group. This is a particularly systemic problem in hiring, especially in technology, where we say that teams are very homogenous. And we see that there aren't any women in coding sector or STEM jobs or science jobs. And that could be because all of the data that is being used to hire is being trained on the majority group. So that would, again, be statistically white men. Just, just to be absolutely clear about how this is working in some companies, if, if I submit my application, no doubt online, is, is in some companies the first filter that's looking at it going to be using uh, a robotic eye, an AI eye, if you like, to, to look at it? Is, is, that, is that what we're talking about here? And it's looking for certain features as an initial filter? Yes, but I wouldn't necessarily call it an AI because I think it is in the rudimentary spectrum of algorithms or rules-based technology mm-hmm. where you're probably sending in your resume or CV and it has keywords and somebody has written uh, a code that matches for the keywords that sit on the CV. And so it's arguably more rules-based and it's not learning any more than that and evolving any more so than that. Right. So that's the very first step where yeah. bias can creep in. And that, that's one of the areas that we're looking at with applied especially in this field, is how do you create that data set that is devoid of bias? And how do you? (laughs) The the big answer uh, is not using CVs and resumes, which brings us in a completely different uncharted territory is how do you hire? Because we've been doing this for 400 odd years, as far as I can remember. We've been using CVs, resumes, LinkedIn profiles. That's the modern age CV. Um, And if you use all of the data that sits on there, that is highly unpredictive and probably adds to bias. And that's a double whammy. If you train a lot of data that works and sits on a CV, then you're likely to end up replicating the human decisions of the past. And that's what that's what's happening. And it's happened with Amazons of the world. So it's not a small uh, problem to solve. Yeah. I mean, does it suggest that we should take AI out of things like recruiting altogether? Well, I'm more with Alistair here. I think there is a huge potential for AI in recruitment and it's quite widespread, but it's more about working on those automated repetitive tasks enabling diagnostics throughout the process. So we could monitor data throughout the hiring process, learn from it, see what works, what doesn't work. But eventually, the human takes the decision. So humans have agency in the process. And that's what we believe at Applied. Does anyone want to come in on on bias being exaggerated by AI? Yes, Alistair. Well, I was really fascinated to hear uh, Kiazi's experience there because, you know, we see exactly the same thing happening in health and, and in fact, we coined a term for her second point around the, the, the impoverishedness of the training data or the narrowness of the training data. We, we coined the term health data poverty because we think that this is a real, um, a real bar to people getting 
good quality healthcare in the future, because as digital health becomes more and more important, including AI systems, you need to make sure that those tools have been trained on a diverse data set that represents the whole population, not just a majority group. And uh, I think this is really key. So we, we see it in recruitment and we see it in, in health. We see it in the justice system as well. There are distinct risks risks there. So So this is an area that to respond to your challenge, what can we do about it? Well, one of the things is to to really focus on how we create those data sets. So you mentioned in your intro that I, I lead a, a health data research hub for iHealth. And a lot of the vision of that is around creating diverse data sets that are inclusive and are representative of the wider population so that when the tools are developed, there's transparency on what the data's trained on. So we know what the representation is, both you know age, ethnicity, gender, and so on. And, but there's also then a, 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 an inclusive data set to train these new algorithms. So I was really, I was really encouraged to hear what Kiyoti's doing in her sector. One of the areas of safety that troubles me, you might think this is a bit broad, but I consider this to be societal safety and algorithms, is how social media uses artificial intelligence. There's a lot of concern that it exaggerates or intensifies our own prejudice by what it feeds us because a prejudiced human is easier to feed material because you know what it wants and it wants a lot of it and that that underpins some of the arguably greater extremism in society today. Jan, I'm going I'm I'm to come to you. I mean, do you see this as a risk? Because I do. If my YouTube or Google or Facebook or whatever is giving me material that it thinks I like and is pushing me in a certain direction and then it notices the more I read, the more I want of that, then it is, in effect, affecting my intelligence or my mind, isn't it? You're quite right. The algorithms that are sitting behind things like social media are are looking for the patterns for what you look for. And essentially, they're tailoring the material, the content that they send to you. It's the same in social media. It's the same in shopping. Uh, If you're shopping, the algorithms are building up a picture about you and they push certain things in your direction that they think you will like. Now, there is a, a question here of, is it correct to be reinforcing opinions? Uh, and is that the job of AI? And, um, and it's, it's a lot of this is, is down to individuals. You know, maybe you've got an individual who wants a balanced view, but maybe you don't. Do you think it's dangerous, that reinforcement? I think it can be, because we don't realise it's necessarily happening. Kiati, do you think it's dangerous? I think it is very dangerous and much beyond our understanding. Do you think some of the uh, atomization of the world, Alistair, is atomization of opinions in the world is, is down to this aspect of artificial intelligence? I, I, think, I think you're right, Tom. I think it um, can reinforce in a really unhelpful way. So it is an area of concern for me. What I struggle with is is where the boundaries of autonomy are. You know, if we look at sort of ethical principles, how much do we say, well, you know, this is a person's choice that they, they're seeking out these reinforcing uh, views? Uh, or how much do we say, well, actually, no, they're not actively choosing that. They are a passive recipient of these algorithms, in which case I think there is a strong argument that you you should challenge that. Um, but, uh, 
Yes, I think it's difficult. Yeah, and you got your hand up. I, I, one of the things I was going to say is, can anything be done about this? You're, you've all agreed that there is some peril in this prejudice reinforcement algorithm of social media. Is there anything that can be done about it, Jan? Well, I want to go back and remind us what AI is. And it is an algorithm that builds up patterns. And the effect it's having is, is, is a very negative effect in, in, in the context we're talking about now. But we have to remember that it isn't designed to have morals or, or ethics at this time. It's just not smart enough to do that. So can, can, we, can we make it... Can we design it in a way that doesn't deliver greater prejudice to individuals? Well, Tom, we, we, can, we can design it to present counter views. So rather than reinforcing your views. Um, but this may come back to my point about autonomy again, is, is that actually, where do we say that that's, that is a, a right thing to do, that there is a moral necessity or a moral argument to do that? I mean, I think that would be good, but um, but I think that I would have to defer to to others. One of the key things here is 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 the black box element, or the fact that this is unseen reinforcement. But I, I think as a as a parent, I I would I would love to be introducing those those, those challenging views, so that so that my kids as they're growing up aren't just reinforced with their their kind of narrow worldview exposure to multiple views I think is so healthy yeah one of the other things that seems a potential peril to me is that I hear the competition between countries in AI Russia China America India described as a race now when you have a race a lot of safety elements tend to fall away you just want to be the victor and so once again is this a is this a peril if we're in danger of seeing this as international competition that we are in peril here, Kiati? Quite frankly, a lot of the safety aspects will fall away because it's not the paramount metric when it comes to deciding who's the fastest uh, and the most efficient and who makes the most money. But it's upon practitioners like myself and people in the industry and in various industries and sectors to work out what the outcomes of these AI will be. Um, and we have to consciously look for bias in the data. So to your question of is it possible to remove or mitigate for biases, I absolutely think we can. So I am taking the glass half full approach, but it is a very hard job to do. And the notion of market forces applies here too, as Alistair said. But I don't think in specific contexts, such as the context of hiring, where we know Algorithmic, algorithmic biases or human biases perpetuate systemic problems. We can't leave it to market forces. Yes, Jan. I, th- I think regulation is a really interesting point. So when we talk about regulation, it's about making sure that we're creating the right behaviours. And that's a really important point to make. And when it comes to a disruptive technology like AI, it's moving really, really fast. Um, and the people who are developing this technology are developing it at pace and they're deploying it at pace. But then you have the people that will maybe need to regulate this technology and they're not, they don't have the same understanding of the technology. That we're not talking, you know, it's a bit like the tortoise and the hare in a way that one is racing ahead and one has a much tougher task to keep up. 
So being able to create the, the regulation that's needed is, is actually really, really difficult. And given the power of the AI, that sounds pretty alarming. Well, I mean, the genie is out of the box in a way. The AI is out there and we do have regulations across the globe that people are starting to try and, and implement to, to make sure that AI is of, of benefit to everybody. But different people will want to regulate in different ways because they see, um, they, they, they see the right behaviours as being different things. So we have across the globe, it's going to be very difficult for everybody to regulate AI in exactly the same way. And that's going to lead to some, some challenges in the future. Yeah, I would see AI as a cultural right. Is there are many moral and cultural issues intertwined there, uh, especially if we are looking for definitions of fairness. I mean, last I checked, there are 21 different kinds of definitions of fairness. So which one would we apply especially to recruiting. Now, within recruiting, there is a standard definition that something that is not relevant to your job application should not feature in, for example, your nationality. It should not matter. But if you build an AI based on CV data and historic data, that's quite likely a possibility that because it's matched a pattern, let's say, of certain kinds of people coming in into the workforce from the UK economy, it replicates that and your nationality becomes a threshold proxy for you to enter the job market, even though that's not what the algorithm was designed to do. It is simply matching a pattern. And so we're back to inferential analytics and understanding how we can create laws that mitigate impact of that inferential analytics when we haven't even completely understood what inferential analytics we can create from this AI. So it is, it is a bit of a cycle. And yeah, I, I love the hare and tortoise analogy by Jan. So I think we're, we're in that loop. Um, time's up, really. But I just wanted to ask you uh, all a, a final question. What do you think the future looks like for AI? How might we be using it in 2050, say? Yeah. I think when I look at the future, I'm really hoping that the issues that we've been highlighting today uh, things that we get to grips with, uh, and that AI is something that we can all benefit from in an equal way. And it's going to be everywhere. I mean, it's already pretty widely used, but it's going to be doing more things and it's going to be doing things in a smarter way. I mean, we were talking earlier about autonomous cars um, and, you know, it's going to probably be another 10 or 20 years before these things are really uh, on the roads in in in, in numbers. But I think AI that we see today and, and that we have in the future, it's really there to make better versions of ourselves so that we do things in a, in a, in a better, smarter way. And I'm hoping that in the future, AI is going to keep us safe. It's going to help us be better people, better versions of what we are, and also build resilience. Wow. That is a glorious future to look forward to. Um, I'm concerned whether we're going to be controlling it or it's going to be controlling us by, by 2050. Well, what's your vision for 2050, Alistair? Yeah, no, I think we'll still be controlling it, um, Tom. I think uh, I think if we look in healthcare, you know, we will ad adapt and innovate AI systems, but we will also change the, the analog systems, if you like, the normal healthcare pathways to be more suitable and safer for those AI systems. So I think there'll be adaptation 
both ways. And I think you'll see the same in different sectors. Some areas it will be seamless. Um, and I guess that's what we're trying to do is get to the point where we're using the strengths of AI and the unique gifts of human that to to just be I like the best version of ourselves. So I want from what I want from an AI system is to allow me to have more time to be a human doctor, really, really being able to help another human who's who's in distress, who's concerned about their diagnosis or their loved one's diagnosis, being help them to make the very best decisions they can possibly make with the best information they can get and with the best understanding which is supported by these artificial intelligence systems that doesn't reinforce reinforce my human biases or my limited ability to retain that data but can really help the patient kiati what's your vision for 2050 well i'm in the same camp as the panel so cautiously optimistic because i think there is huge potential from what we've already discussed transport 2.0 to food 2.0, work 2.0, democracy 2.0 even. And I think AI has a big potential, but it is upon us to look at the outcomes and how we implement it, because that's going to be key. Uh, I, I, My ideal version is exactly the same as Alastair. We have human agency, but the AI is used as enablement. So it makes us better humans. It makes us make better, better decisions, faster decisions, but not at the expense of society. So everyone comes along. But it is a it is a utopian world I live in. So we'll see. It's quite a widely held view that, that some aspects of AI and the social media aspects we talked about earlier have actually undermined democracy. You're suggesting that AI in the future could enhance democracy? Potentially. I think we can have better diagnostics and make better decisions as a society. Now, whether that's in recruitment or you take global politics, you can make better decisions because what you need for making better decisions, it is better insights. And where can you get that real time? You can use AI to get you real time data across really large economies if you wish to and synthesize that, but retain human agency and and make you a better global leader. You can do that. But whether we get to that is is a different point. Retaining human agency, that's a phrase that's come up quite a lot, and I I like the sound of that. Well, thanks very much to today's panel, Jan Pushtadek, Kiati Sundaram, and Alistair Denniston. And also to our guests we heard from earlier, Anna McIntosh, John McDermid, and Adriana Bora. Well, that was the last Global Safety Podcast for the year. Dry your eyes, but don't worry, we'll be back in 2022 with more from the Lloyds Register Foundation. Just search for us, The Global Safety Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.